Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And as you're turning there, some of you have been on these trips with me, but we've traveled to South Asia on many occasions to do mission trips. We go into remote villages among the tribal people, and we do a lot of gospel ministry. Now, in these areas, the primary religion is a combination of Buddhism and animism. Now, animism is not the worship of animals. (laughs) Animism is the worship of ancestors, evil spirits, things like that. And I have encountered demonic activity on numerous occasions in South Asia. The first time was with the very first trip that we went. We went into a village, and there was a couple, an elderly couple, that had gotten very sick. And they wanted us to come and pray for them. And so they had gone back to their old ways because they were sick, of consulting the witch doctor and getting into shamans and all these types of things. And so I asked the translator if I could share the gospel with them before I prayed. He said, sure, go ahead. And so as I stood on the porch and began to share a gospel, this lady with glazed over eyes came into the village and started going, trying to wake you up this morning. She's doing all these weird things. She was definitely demon-possessed. And the translator said something to her. I don't know what he said, but she, she was silent. And she sat there at his feet with the catatonic look on her face, this glazed look on her eyes. I shared the gospel with the couple. I prayed with the couple. Immediately when I said amen, she jumped right back up and started doing her crazy things again and started doing a bunch of weird stuff. And so that was the first time I'd ever encountered somewhat of a demonic activity. The second time we were on a mission trip, we went to this one village And I was told by the translator that there would be a demon-possessed lady that would come later on that night, and I need to be prepared to cast out a demon. And so I'm thinking, okay, this sounds fun. And so I went back that afternoon to the compound, and the whole time I'm nervous, and I'm reading my Bible. I'm like, okay, i got to get ready to cast this demon out when it comes. And, you know, you're kind of freaked out, being warned. It would be better if she just came up to me and did it. But like that whole afternoon, I'm thinking i got to cast this demon out. And so she comes, and she looked more like she was really just kind of sick. And so I just I prayed over her. I laid my hands on her. I, pr- I really just prayed the gospel over her. Nothing weird happened. She didn't foam with the mouth, nothing from the exorcist or anything like that. It was just kind of a quiet situation. But I felt like the translator was a little bit upset with me that I didn't do the mumbo-jumbo and do like the <laughs> cast out the demon type thing. And so I felt a little deflated, like it was kind of anticlimactic waiting for this this demonic activity. Then there was the final time in one of the villages. This was a village that was very hostile to the gospel. Uh, They worshiped the mountains, the the hills. And I began preaching the gospel in this village. And right as I started talking about sin, this woman at the back takes this thing and starts wrapping it around her head really fast. And she starts yelling at me and screaming at me. And at that same time, this dust devil this dust storm comes and starts blowing through the village and so she's yelling at me and this dust thing's coming and I'm like wide-eyed like what in the world's going on and I just keep preaching with the translator and, and finally after it's over 
I look at our missionary, which many of you know who he is, and we're, we're kind of debriefing. I'm like, what in the world happened? He's like, Sean, I've never seen anything like that before. I've never seen a lady get so angry. I've never seen so much demonic activity. I've never seen like a dust devil, a dust storm come. He goes, definitely there was some spiritual warfare going on there. So needless to say, on three occasions in South Asia, I've encountered some type of demonic activity, spiritual warfare, demonic forces. Now, why do I bring up demon possession, forces of evil? In today's passage, Jesus comes face to face with a man who doesn't just have one demon, but probably thousands of demons. If you remember the Sunday before Easter, we started this new trajectory in Luke chapter 8 where Jesus calms the storm. There's a raging on the ocean. There's a raging of the seas. Jesus calms the storm. And his disciples look at him and says, who is this man that can calm the storms? Great question. Who is this man? We'll find out, ironically, from the lips of demons who this man is. So we move to the next story in the account, the next event. Jesus calms the raging water on the sea. In this event, he calms the raging demonic activity in the soul of this man. The disciples end in verse 25. Who is this man that he commands and even the wind and the waters obey him? Who is this man? Well, as we read, we'll find out. And the answer comes again, surprisingly, from the mouth of demons. Let's read together Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you done to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. It had kept him under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for we are many demons, had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and into the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home 
and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. If there ever was a man in the Bible who had the worst, saddest, most torturous experience, it was probably this man. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this episode. And as you read all three of the gospel accounts together side by side, you get the full picture of what this poor man went through. Verse 27 here, Paul says, not Paul, Luke says, For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. For a long time. We don't know how long this man was demon-possessed, but it was probably a prolonged experience. We find out that he runs around naked, homeless. He lived in the tombs. In that area on the Sea of Galilee, there was a cemetery on top of a hill, and he probably lived on the top of the hill among this cemetery, among the graveyards. This man was seized by demons. He was out of control, so much so that he had to be shackled with chains like a, like a wild animal. Mark's gospel tells him that no one could subdue him. And the word that Mark uses there for subdue was to tame a wild animal. He was also, Mark describes, always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Luke here tells us that he was oftentimes driven by the demon into the desert. You see that at the end of verse 29. He was driven by the demon into the desert. I think Luke is doing a play on words here because that word driven was often used in other places in the Bible of being driven on, a, on the sea by the winds, like a wind moving a ship. So I think Luke is trying to show us here that the, the sea was moving the disciples across there on that storm and the demons are, are moving this man into the desert. That There's a tempest going on here. Now, not only would he be ostracized from his community because of just being a crazy man, demon-possessed man, but he would be ceremonially unclean for being around dead bodies. You go back and you read your Old Testament, anybody that hung around dead bodies was ceremonially unclean. You couldn't be part of the, the religious community. And so this man is tormented beyond imagination. And one of the things that this passage of Scripture teaches us is that demons are real. They are real. Now, sadly, in our culture, the devil has been characterized as a, as a guy with a red suit and a pitchfork and horns and a long tail. You, some of you remember the old Far Side comics where, you know, those little comics that talk about going to hell. We've caricaturized Satan. So much so that we don't understand what the Bible teaches about him. The Bible says he masquerades as an angel of light. And as was read earlier, he prowls around like a roaring lion. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Think about the imagery there. He's a roaring lion, but an angel of light. Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If there ever was demonic activity to the extreme, it was here with this man. Naked, homeless, howling at the moon, cutting himself, being shackled, breaking free. And interestingly, we find something very startling in verse 28. The demons have great theology and know exactly who Jesus is. Remember the disciples? Who is this man? Demons are like, we know who this man is. Look at verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, probably a very startling, demonic-type voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. The demons know who Jesus is. Do you know that demons believe? James 2.19 You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, what do they call Jesus? Son of the Most High God. Where have we seen that language before in Luke? It's what Gabriel announced to Mary when Jesus was going to be born at the birth of Christ. In Luke 1.32, he will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. They know exactly who he is. Now, one of the key words that shows up four times in this passage of Scripture is the word beg. I beg you. I beg you not to torment me. Now, if you look at Luke's gospel, he says there, whatever you do to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High, I beg you, do not torment me. Matthew's gospel gives us another little bit of information, an interesting fact Okay, so what is Matthew's gospel? How does Matthew record this? In Matthew 8, 29, Behold, they cried out, what have, you do to, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And the way that that word's used in Matthew is before the appointed time. Here's the point. The demons knew there was a time, an appointed time, when they would be tormented. They would be thrown into the abyss. Because look down there, um, at later on down there, it's in verse, um, at the end of verse 31. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They know their future is to go into the abyss. And they're thinking the time is now that Jesus is going to do that. It was the appointed time. We know that this is the final abode of the devil. Revelation 20, 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, the bottomless pit, the abyss. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, the abyss. And shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended, that he might be released for a little while. I'm not going to talk about the thousand years and all that type of stuff. All I'm saying here is that these demons knew there was an appointed time that they were going to be thrown into hell. Now here's the irony. 
but think about this for a moment. There's a lot of people today who do not believe in hell, but demons sure do. They know what their end is. Jesus, do not torment us before the time. Now, one thing we need to understand about these demons is they have no power whatsoever. They can only beg Jesus. We beg you, Jesus, don't torment me. We beg you, Jesus, don't throw us into the abyss. Now, in verse 30, and I think this is the only time Jesus ever asks the name of a demon, he asks, what is your name? And what's the answer? Legion. Legion. For many demons had entered him. Now, legion. What, what's the significance of legion? It's a military term barred from Roman, the Roman Empire. It's Latin. It was a troop of maybe around 5,600 to 6,000 troops. So let's just round up to 6,000 troops. A legion was 6,000 troops. Now, there's some debate here. Does this man literally have 6,000 demons in him? I don't know. It doesn't say the exact number. It just says there's many. Mark's gospel tells us there were 2,000 pigs. So some scholars have come to the conclusion that there were maybe 2,000 demons in this man that came out and went into the 2,000 pigs. We really don't know. The issue is this. I don't want to have one demon. But to have many, let's just, let's just for the sake of argument assume that it's 2,000 demons. That's a lot of demonic activity going on in this tortured man. It's hard to wrap our minds around one person being possessed by that many evil spirits. Again, probably the most tormented, lamentable man in the entire Bible who's going through this. Verse 31, what do they say? They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Command. What did we see a few weeks ago? Jesus commanded the wind and the waves. It's the same word there. He has command over the sea. He has command over the demons. One commentator put it this way. I like the way he put it. Jesus' divine power over the forces of nature, when he stilled the tempest, is the omnipotent victor over the forces of the devil. Where he commands, they have to obey him. They have no choice in the matter. When Jesus commands, the wind and waves have to obey him. When Jesus commands, the demons have to obey him. They have no choice. So Jesus does something very interesting. They beg him another time, send us into these pigs. And Mark tells us there are around 2,000 of these pigs. Now, what's the significance of pigs in this story? I thought about titling this message when pigs fly, but I thought that would be a little bit weird. This is probably somewhat of a, being close to a Gentile area. There's probably a Roman garrison, military. These Jewish people were probably supplying pork for the Romans because obviously Jewish people don't eat pork. So they're probably pig farmers raising it to feed the military, to feed the army. No matter how you slice it, these pig farmers relied upon pigs for their income. 
Now, a lot of you are farmers and ranchers, and you would think about what would happen if all of your cattle got decimated, all of your, 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 your livestock got decimated in just a few moments. And this is what happens. Economic loss. Jesus commands the demons to come out of the man, and 2,000 pigs go flying off a cliff down into the sea. They're dead. Economic collapse. Huge problem in that area. Loss of pigs. You may think, uh, it's interesting, when you read the commentators, everybody's bothered by the fact that Jesus did this. Some commentators are like, Jesus was cruel to animals. This is cruelty to animals. He wasn't, caring about the, he wasn't caring about the economic situation of these people because he just like messed up their economy. They're missing the forest for the trees. Here's the point. Here's the point, the beauty of the story. One demon-possessed man is more valuable to Jesus than 2,000 pigs. Now, I'm not going to say you can replace pigs, but you understand what I'm saying, if that's your livestock. Jesus loved this one man, and he was more important than anything else in that moment. It reminds me of Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29 through 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This man was of more value than many pigs, many sparrows. Now, verse 35 is wonderful. Because what do we see in verse 35? We see the man's transformation. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, look at the description here, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Instead of running around wild in the tombs, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Instead of running around naked, he's clothed. Instead of wailing and cutting himself and and trying to break out of shackles, he's in his right mind. I love the imagery of the man sitting at Jesus' feet. If you go through the Gospels, you'll find out that that's the posture of a disciple. The disciples sat at Jesus' feet. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to be with him. So this man who was demon-possessed is now a disciple. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, waiting, listening. It's not insignificant that Luke includes that. He's a disciple. It's very beautiful. And then verse 36, we also have another play on words. Those who had seen it, the man there in his right mind, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Now, the word healed in the original language can also be saved. Same word. Yes, he's been healed of his demon possession, but he's been saved. He's been saved by grace. Now, I want to show you the twist. This has the same twist that the other verse had that we looked at a few weeks ago. Remember the disciples on the raging sea? They're afraid that they're going to get killed on the ocean, that they're going to get killed on the sea. And what happened after Jesus calmed the storm? They were more afraid. Same thing happening here. The people are afraid of this man. Now, if you're a parent, do you want to take your kids around this guy? Matthew's gospel tells us that 
Basically, he was so fierce that no one could pass by him. He was a fearful man to be around. He generated fear. If you had a guy living in your neighborhood that walked around naked, barking like a dog, cutting himself, and howling at the moon, you probably would keep your kids away from him. He's a fearful man. You don't want to be around. He's, it's scary. Okay. The disciples, when they're on the sea, it's scary. These winds and waves, it's scary. This demon-possessed man, he's scary. But after Jesus calmed the storm, they're more afraid. After Jesus healed the man, the people are more afraid. Did you catch it? Look at verse 35. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were what? They're afraid. They're afraid after he's, they're afraid when he's healed, when he's in his right mind. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, that's Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. They're seized with great fear at the healing of this demon-possessed man. Now, what's the source of their fear? It's Jesus. The man who has power over the wind and waves, the man who has a power over demon, a man who is high and lofty and lifted up and so gloriously powerful that these people are so uncomfortable in the presence of Jesus that they say, Jesus, we don't want any more of you. You've wrecked our economy. You've freaked us out. Get out of here. They, they basically reject Jesus and say, we want you as, as far gone as possible. Get out of our town. We are afraid of you. They reject Jesus. Now, interestingly, what happens? Jesus gets in the boat. And he is about to ready to go across to the other side. In verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged, there's that word again, begged that he might be with him. Now, think about this man for a moment. If you've been released from 2,000 demons and Jesus had radically saved you, what would you want to do? I want to sit at the feet of Jesus and go everywhere you go, Jesus. I want to spend every waking minute with you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. You've changed me, Jesus. You've, you've radically saved me, Jesus. You've delivered me, Jesus. I want to hang out with you and the disciples. This is wonderful. You've changed my life. And interestingly, Jesus says, no, that's not my plan for you. What does he say to the man? He doesn't say, hey, come be part of my band of 12 disciples. We'll make it 13 now. What does he say? <clears throat> Return to your I think Mark says, go back to your friends and family. Go back home. Interestingly, this is a missionary verse. He becomes the first missionary in the Gospel of Luke. And isn't it just like Jesus to heal a demon-possessed man and send him back as a missionary? A Gentile, probably two Gentiles. Now, where's home? We find out in Mark's Gospel, this is what's called the Decapolis. The ten cities, a predominantly non-Jewish area. Now, we don't know how long he's been gone from his family. We just know that Luke tells us that he's been possessed by these demons for a prolonged amount of time. So he goes back home. And as he goes back home to his friends and his family, what does Jesus tell him to do? Jesus says, return to your home, there in verse 39, and declare how much 
God has done for you. Declare is a very interesting word in the original language. It really means this. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the vernacular. Jesus is basically saying, go back and give all the juicy details of what happened. Go back and explain in full detail. Give all the graphic details. Give all the juicy details. Leave nothing out. Go back and just share the whole story of what I've done for you. And that's what the man does. He goes back and he proclaims it. He shares it. He declares it with joy. It's interesting how Jesus tells him to go back home. Oftentimes, we think we have to go someplace exotic. We have to go overseas on an overseas mission trip to someplace exotic, which I'm not saying you shouldn't do. I've been to some exotic places. But oftentimes, Jesus says, you know what? You have a mission field right at home. It may be your backyard, it may be next to your locker, it may be on the soccer field, it may be at your cubicle, it may be in your neighborhood. Wherever is home to you, there may be people there that need Jesus. And so Jesus tells us, man, don't hang around with me as much as you'd like to. Go back home because the people back home haven't experienced what you've experienced and you can go back and tell them. And notice what he says. Tell them all that Jesus has done for you. Now, we have to ask the question, what did Jesus do for this man? That's an obvious question, Pastor Sean. He healed him of 2,000 demons. Yes, but Mark's gospel gives a great detail that Luke's gospel does not. Let me read to you Mark's account and how Mark kind of fills in a little bit more details. It gives a little bit deeper description. Mark 5.19, he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go back and tell your friends and family how Jesus has been merciful to you, how Jesus has been compassionate, how Jesus has shown mercy. If there ever was a man in the Bible who needed mercy, it was this man. If you had 2,000 demons raging within you, if you were living among the tombs, if you were cutting yourself, if you were barking at the moon, if you were walking around naked and homeless, you needed mercy. You needed mercy. And Jesus shows him mercy. Changes his life forever. And says, go back and tell your friends and family how you received mercy, how you received grace. Now, what does this story have to do with you and me? I venture to say nobody here has 2,000 demons in them. If so, you need to come up after the service and we need to talk, okay? Probably nobody here has been demon-possessed. But what does the Bible describe about you and me before we got saved? Was there any demonic influence in our life before we were saved? Paul tells us in, first, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. As unbelievers, our eyes were blinded to the gospel. Satan had blinded us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. And you were dead, were dead in the trespasses and sins in what you once walked. And what were you doing? Following the course of this world. Following 
the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. I want you to think about your spiritual condition before your salvation and compare it to this man that we've just seen. Like him, we were naked and exposed in our guilt. Like him, we were cut off from God in hostility against him. Like him, we were violent and uncontrollable, and it may not have been in our actions, but in our hearts, in our thoughts, we raged against God. Paul says in Colossians 1, 21-22, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In essence, here's what the Bible describes our condition before we were saved. We were guilty. We were hopeless. We were dead. We followed Satan. We were enslaved to our lust. We were in bondage. We were against God. We were helpless. We were hellbound. We were tormented. And what was our greatest need? Our greatest need was just like this man's greatest need. Mercy. Every single one of us needed mercy. And how does Paul describe that mercy? Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Riches of mercy, immeasurable kindness, amazing grace. We need that mercy that only Jesus can give us. In your spiritual nakedness, Jesus has clothed you with his righteousness. In your spiritual deadness, when you were walking around the tombs of sin, Jesus gave you new life. In your spiritual bondage to Satan, Jesus has freed you. By his grace. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He's delivered us. He's delivered us from where? The domain of darkness. And he's transferred us where? To the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Once you've been freed... From your sin and from Satan, we now, like this man as a disciple, sit at the feet of Jesus and we listen and we learn and we follow. And we go tell others all that Jesus has done for us. If you've been set free from the bondage of Satan, and the bondage of sin, if you've been set free, then let me just ask you, would you make it your life's ambition to do two things? This should be the, the two things of the life of a Christian. If you've truly been set free from sin, two things that you would make your life ambition. Number one, you would sit at the feet of Jesus and listen and learn. 
And number two, you would go tell others all that he's done for you. You can't leave one out without the other. We got to sit and we got to learn and we got to grow and be with Jesus, but we also got to go tell. There are people all around you, may not be demon possessed like this man, but who need mercy. And you're the one to tell them all, all that Jesus has done for you. Can you fathom all that Jesus has done for you? Can you think about all that Jesus has done for you? Would we be a people that sit at his feet and worship and go out and tell others? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we think about these things together. Lord, when we really stop and think about all that you've done for us, we can't help but be amazed. We can't help but be humbled. We can't help but be joyful. When we think about what you've saved us from, the domain of darkness, and what you've brought us into, the kingdom of light. We're just like this man, may not be in the same intensity, but you've delivered us from bondage. And Lord, we want to sit at your feet as a disciple. We want to be as close to you as we can. We want to learn, we want to listen. But Lord, we also want to be like this man and go and tell all that you've done for us. So Lord, give us the grace to balance that personal time alone with you and that time that we go and share with others. We see a great model of your grace in this passage of Scripture, how you showed this man mercy. Oh Lord, how we need your mercy day by day. How we need your grace day by day. And how others that are living in darkness without that hope need your mercy and grace. And Lord, we may be the only one that can tell them about that. Maybe they've never heard it fully. Maybe they've never had it explained. Maybe they don't know even the darkness that they're living in. Would you give us the boldness to the power of the Holy Spirit to go share? Help us to go back home to our friends and family and tell all that Jesus has done for us. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. May we go out this week with the joy of the Lord as our strength, with these two mental images in our mind, one of sitting at your feet as a disciple learning and the other is going back home and sharing all that you've done. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.